Thank you for joining the special edition of Harper Audio Presents, where we are excerpting the new novel from Ryan Gaddis, who has been compared to Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and Dennis Lehane. The novel, All Involved, publishing from Echo Press on April 7, 2015, takes place over six days in 1992 with the LA riots as backdrop. Today's excerpt is from day two, Thursday. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year, and this is not for them. Ryan, please tell us who Big Fate is and how he's related to the murder victim Ernesto Vera. Sure. Uh, Big Fate's um, given name is Jose Laredo. Uh, He's the leader of of the Linwood gang we follow here and there throughout the book. And he's actually living in, in the Vera household um, with Ernesto and Lomasco and Payasa because he had nowhere else to live. Um, he's the quiet, unquestioned leader uh, in his clique. He doesn't need to shout at people to make them jump. All he needs to do is look at them. He's calm. He's reasoned. He's deeply strategic. He's constantly worried about the the welfare of his fellow gang members. They are, I I mean, I think you can really say they're family to him, but uh, as is the case with power, difficult choices must be made for the good of the group, and and he's the one who has to make them. As far as this section is concerned, you know, I think the pervasive view of the riots is that they were an awful, terrible, scary thing, and they were. They absolutely were, but What I found fascinating during my research, uh, particularly with former gang members, was that many of them viewed it as one of the best moments in their lives. You know, to them, it was a period of uh, complete freedom. They could do anything they wanted. It it was a devil's night that ended up lasting six days. And that's where this section picks up, uh, the morning of day two, when the gang members have realized that the city is not yet under control, even though they expected it to be. Big Fate has just gotten in the car with Payasa, Apache, and Clever, And they're trying to figure out how best to take advantage of the chaos. Here is narrator Anthony Ray Perez reading from Day 2 from All Involved. Payasa's couch is from the 1970s, lumpy as fuck. I didn't get any kind of sleep from laying there all night, gripping a gun and listening to every car going by, certain each one is Joker's gang coming back on us, until it isn't, until it drives right by, and then I worry about the next one. The fingers on my right hand are all cramped up, so I shake them out as I squint at yellow light coming through the tops of the front windows, up and over old striped curtains. It's morning, I know that. I couldn't have been down for more than a few hours because Payasa had to go see her mama after, just to tell her what happened with Ernesto and how she did justice to the ones that did it. What came next is ugly, like exorcist ugly. Pitching, crying, screaming, names of saints getting called out. Payasita getting big blame, but little Mosco getting more. We only left when her auntie came over, the one who can't talk because she bit her tongue clean through as a little girl when a horse kicked her in Mexico, and she started making pozole at whatever o'clock in the morning. On the ride home, I drive us back by Ernesto to see if the coroner scooped him up yet, and they hadn't. Guess the city was too busy being on fire because his body was still there in the alley, with his sister's striped black and white flannel covering his face like them sad flags that get draped over soldiers' coffins. If that shit doesn't drill a hole in your stomach, then nothing will, Holmes. 
I hear the fridge door open and close, then Clever sliding around the kitchen in his house shoes because he's too lazy to pick his feet up. He's hungry. He'll never get more of the juice for himself. He'll wait for me to cook before he eats anything. Eggs, maybe even though we only got four. Papas, we got no bacon left, no tomatoes neither. There's still some chorizo, but it's cold. Didn't end up eating any of it on account of last night. Bias's door is closed. She's still in there with Lorraine. They've been quiet all night. Cemetery quiet, I call it. I gotta know if she's okay, but I don't look forward to her maybe finding out about some shit I did. Shit that's been eating at me so much it's bubbling up. And it burns, kind of. And I don't want to think about it right now if I don't have to. So I walk over to the TV and slap it on. Dial down the volume and retreat back to the couch. Expecting the same as every other half-wise gangster in L.A., you know? Straight law and order. Like cops out in full force with their vests on, locking shit down. Sheriffs throwing shackles on fools and slamming them into cage back seats so they can haul their asses off to process. Statements. Fingerprints. Photos. Jail. You know, just a bunch of thuggish motherfuckers in uniform running a big-ass net along the streets and scooping up the idiotas, the drunk ones, the drugged-up ones, the ones that stayed way too late at the party and now gotta pay for what everybody else did. But when the screen hums on and the crispy tube static fades, a picture forms from all those blobby colors getting mashed together. A picture forms when they sharpen into shapes, into city blocks, into running people, into running people carrying shit, and I don't see what I'm expecting, not even close. I see the exact fucking opposite. And I blink to make sure I'm actually seeing it jump off in Compton, where all kinds of shit is laying out onto the street. Everything looking like a tornado hit it. Clothes, toilet paper, smashed TVs, drink cans, some shit that looks like cotton candy blowing around but can't be. No way. There's busted glass everywhere, on sidewalks, over curbs, and into the street looking like shiny confetti you never want to touch. And fires. Shit. There's fires in garbage cans. Fires in mini markets. Fires in fucking gas stations, man. There's fires on top of fires, and they're spiraling into the sky like they're holding it up. Table legs, I call it. That's what the smoke looks like. The news switches to a camera on a helicopter, and the sky, man, the sky isn't even blue. Or that halfway kind of gray we get on those worst smog days. It looks like wet concrete. A gray so dark, it's almost black. It looks heavy as fuck. That's when it hits me. I'm staring at a war zone in South Central. It's like somebody packed up all the shit I've been seeing in Lebanon almost my whole life, put it in a box, shipped it over, and opened up that chaos in my backyard. It's some Gaza Strip shit. La neta, Holmes. And this whole entire scene says the same to me as it says to every other knucklehead who ever thought bad thoughts across this whole city. Now's your fucking day, homie. Felicidades. You won the lottery. Go out there and get wild, it says. Come and take what you can, it says. If you're bad enough, if you're strong enough, come out and take it. Devil's night in broad daylight, I call it. Because the world we live in's completely flipped now. Up's down. Down's up. Bad is fucking good. And badges don't mean shit. Because cops don't get to own the city today. We do. I feel like a jolt of electricity go up and down my neck, and I can't pick the phone up fast enough. I page five, six homeboys to get their asses over here as quick as my stiff-ass fingers can dial. I go through numbers from memory until I hit about 12, and stop because I know they'll spread the word how it needs to be spread. 
We need wheels. We need to roll deep. Already right now, it looks like we're behind. Step one is to jump shit off in Linwood. You know, get it chaotic like how it's jumping off in Compton. Because that'll spread the cops out thinner than they already are. I'm planning shit in my head then. Places to hit. Shit to gather. Where to hide it. I pick up the phone again and page little creeper. If ever there was a day made for that fucking cucaracha, it's this one. He was put on this earth for ripping and running and stuffing dope in himself and nothing else. Even wasted, even half asleep. Nobody gets locks off like he gets locks off. Shit might as well be aluminum foil in his hands. Nobody else can look at an iron gate and in two seconds figure out how to bust it or get it open like he can. When the phone beeps for me to key my number in, I do. And I leave my usual code at the end so he knows to call back quick because it's serious. And if he doesn't, well, that's when bad shit happens. That's when a homie gets sent to pick his ass up. Clever scrapes into the living room then, sipping at his juice from one of them Dick Tracy plastic cups you get for eating at McDonald's. He puts his eyes on the screen and stops dead as I hang the phone up in its cradle. We both watch a pharmacy on Vermont get torn the fuck up while some news dude on the corner just goes on about how this shit doesn't have anything to do with Rodney King or the verdict and how it's about poor people with no morals getting an opportunity to do bad and how he can't believe they're taking it. And I'm like, really? But he still goes on about how this isn't his America, the one he knows and loves and believes in. I have to chuckle at that ignorant been living so long in the burbs he doesn't even know what the fuck's real anymore shit. Because that's when Clever cracks up and says, what I've been thinking in my head the whole time. Welcome to my America, cabron. Two. Fate's not so common a name. Not in Spanish. I never heard of anybody else with it. I get asked where it's from sometimes. How'd I get named that? But I never say it's because I caught a bullet when I was 20. And I'm not going to tell you who shot it or from what click. Because I didn't tell the sheriffs that neither when they asked. It was a big fucking caliber, though. And something must have been defective with the bullet or casing. Because even from 20 feet away, it didn't go all the way through me. It stuck. Didn't go more than an inch deep. But I bled on my neighbor Mrs. Rubio's front walk like you wouldn't believe. All I remember from that besides the ambulance ride with the fucking sloppy EMT who couldn't find my veins for shit is the abuela herself coming up all calm and sitting Indian style next to me, fanning her blue dress out and putting my hand on top of it, on the lace fabric in her lap as she talked about how I had una fate grande and I'd live. Right then, I thought she was saying it wasn't my fate to die. But when she said it again, I heard it right, una fe grande. She wasn't talking about fate at all, but a big faith instead. It was too late, though. My brain had caught the word fate and liked the sound of it. And I promised myself that if I lived, that'd be my name. I never told Payaso the whole story, and I can't think why now. She knows about the bullet, sure, and she knows an abuela was there. But not that the granny gave me that name, even by accident. I guess sometimes if you spend enough time with people, you don't question them. Not where they come from, not where they got their name or how. It just is. It's just accepted. But I kind of want to tell her now. Bayasa asked me a long time ago if I'm sorry sometimes for what I'd done. I told her no then. But it's yes. For sure it's yes. I don't regret anything though. Me, I'm a soldier. I always went where I was needed, 
and I was always down. Always. Even as a little homie. When circles got called out in the dead end by the park, older homies passed me up every time because they knew I was down. Nobody's ever had to call my ass out. Not even once. You're cool, they'd say. But this fucking homeboy's down. And then they used my ass as an example to the other little homies on how to be. That always felt good. Right now, there's people here in the living room that need telling what to do. I count 15 out of our 116, and that's not even including the little homies outside trying to be down and earn their stripes. I look at them, all the faces in this room, and I think, this is why I do what I do. For them. La clica. Mi familia. All of it. For them. They're why I had to give little Mosco up. Yeah, that shit's true. I did it. Faisal won't never hear it from me, because what's there to say about it? But the truth's the truth, and I'm sorry for real, but I don't regret that shit neither. But right now, though, I do wish she could jump inside my head and read my mind, see through my eyes, and understand, like, in an instant, the decision I had to make when the big homies came to me and sat me down and said little Mosco's name was in the fucking hat. The green light was on, they said, and I had to choose. Either one knucklehead that keeps fucking up, or the whole entire crew. That was that, you know? You can't argue with them, or tell them how they're wrong. He had to go. You take that shit on the chin like a boxer that knows he's got to take a fucking dive. If I didn't send little Mosco to Riverside, it would have been an open season on us. All of us. Everywhere. All the time. That shit's a fact. And one was not equal to, or greater than, 116 last I checked. Even I know that, and I quit school halfway through 8th grade. But Joker and them getting Ernesto in the same day? That shit tore me up. It was the worst possible timing there ever was. And when that Serato kid came to the door at first, I almost spilled to Payasa because I thought the kid was talking about Little Mosco, and I was tripping on how that couldn't even be possible, and it didn't hit me till a few seconds later that it wasn't. It hit me like a sucker punch is what it did that it was Ernie laying dead for no good reason. And when I knew that, I knew I should have given up Lil Mosco sooner, and that burned in me. I also knew I had to do whatever I could to let Payasa do what she had to do. I let her overstep some bounds to do some shit I never would have let No Chola do because that was some vengeance shit, and it was righteous. But Lil Mosco? Shit, I had to give him up. Payasa knew better than anyone he had a bad head on his shoulders. Just why I gave so many rules, you know? Number one, don't do no fucking drugs. Number two, drive the speed limit, fool. And three, and most especially, don't take nobody with you. I had to make sure it was only him he dragged into it. And I even gave him my car to do the drive-in. Little Mosco threw himself in that hat. That's just a fact. And I had to make sure we didn't end up in it too. Because it wasn't just us. It was our families. The big homies could do it if they wanted to. They've done it before. There's no going against that. It wasn't ever a real choice. It was a no-brainer. Like, think about how it would have gone if a big homie showed up at Payasa's mom's new house, rang the bell, put a gun to the peephole when he saw the light behind it get blocked by her head. Shit. Makes me sick just thinking about it. There's another rule I got. One body is not worth everybody, no matter what. If Payasa would have come out her door before, maybe I could have pulled her aside before the homies came through and made her see the sense to it. But Ernesto happening? 
I got no words for that shit. Nobody saw that coming. But that's this crazy life. It comes at you how it wants to, whether you're ready or not. And sometimes it takes what it shouldn't. Sometimes that's the only thing you can count on it doing. Taking. Her door is still closed. She doesn't even say shit when I knock, so I'm just looking down at every gun in the house sitting in a pile on the coffee table in front of the couch. There's 20. It's not enough if we're going to protect ourselves from whatever Joker's big brother ends up coming back with. So I'm scheming, thinking we could go over and just bash our way into Western Auto because they got guns in the back, pistolas, clips, all that. Why at an auto store? I never wondered that before. I guess just because it makes more money than shocks and brake pads. That's that ghetto economy for you. Right then when I'm thinking that, the phone rings. I'm expecting it to be a little creeper when I pick up. It's not. It's Sonny from the gun store on Long Beach. Soon as I hear his voice, I know ethicals are out the window. He says they only got two other guys on shift with him. And they've got the lights off. They're supposed to be protecting the guns, but for a price... They'll leave the front door open and we could roll in. I say, how much? Uh, he says and pauses long enough to pull a random number out of his ass. 3,000? Sure, I say, like this motherfucker is ever getting that. Cash, he says. What the fuck else am I going to pay you with, a check? I say, just make sure the front's open, fool. Avaro, I call it. Money grubbing greed. Sonny's just looking for a come up. He's selling his job out, selling out the people he works with. I can't respect that shit. See, what Sonny doesn't know is that he can negotiate on any other day but today. When up's down, I don't got to pay him shit. More important, I get to come back on him for being a culero and sleeping with my older sister on prom night 86 and for giving her the clap. Fuck whoever he's homies with today, he catches one. I don't tell him that, though. I just hang up the phone and cock my gun. It's one of them old army Colts. It says caliber 45 on the barrel. It also says rimless, smokeless. I think it used to be somebody's grandpa's, but that don't matter. It's mine now. It's been mine for almost a year. I look at the clock. It's a quarter to ten, and Creeper still hasn't shown. Hijo de su chingada madre, I think. He must be holed up in some motel having already spent the money I paid him for that gun and less than a full clip of bullets. He put that shit right into veins, guaranteed. I'm deciding if I should give him another minute when Payasa stumbles out of her room. Says what's up to Clever while he's finishing up his kit. Grabs Apache, whispers some shit to him, and pulls him outside, almost to where the little homies are standing in a circle on the lawn. I'm not happy to see that, but it's not like I tell her not to. Out the window, I see her and Apache sharing a cigarette. They're getting wet again, guaranteed. Every puff of that shit is just running from the real pain. I understand, especially for Ernesto, I understand. But I can't recommend it. In my experience, when you do your diligence, and even after, it's best to do it sober. That way, you can face up to that shit you done and own it. That way, it's easier to know the motherfuckers deserve what they got. If Payasa ever asks, I'll tell her. Only then, though. One minute turns into two and still no sign of Creeper. On a day like today, I can't spare no homies to go track him down. So I say fuck it and walk outside. Four. I didn't believe it until it was real. TV is TV, 
You never can trust that shit. Except for today. And it's on Atlantic, weaving through light traffic with no cops in sight that the fever takes hold of us. All of us. It's a sweaty, hot feeling of we can do whatever the fuck we want. It feels like way too much coffee. It feels like I'm sitting shotgun and I roll my window down and I put my hand on top of the car. I bang my fist on the roof like ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Ba, 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 ba. Like a rhythm to how fast we're going. 50, 55, 60. Apache is one lead-footed motherfucker. Normally, I tell him to slow the hell down, but not today. Today, there's no speed limits. There's no any kind of limits. Hey, Apache says after one too many bob-ops. That's my roof, man. I shoot him a shut-the-fuck-up look, and real quick, he says, Sorry. I get in his face and shake him. I'm fucking with you, Ohms. I punch the radio on. I go up the dial and down. Everywhere, it's news, 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 reports, people complaining like it's not the greatest day on earth, but like it's a disaster or something. I flip it to AM. There's no oldies, but there's something. Actual music, sort of. It's some fucking cheesy rock, the kind gavachos call classic. Electric guitars and clapping sounds. Ba-ba-ba-da-ba. That's what the hook sounds like. The song's called more than my feelings or some shit. Apache recognizes it. Man, fuck Boston, he says, making a big fucking frowny face and moving to shut it off. But I shake my head. Let that shit run, I say. I even turn it up just to fuck with him. Anybody who ever made it out of my neighborhood did it because they didn't come out to play. You can't ever explain to those people how good it feels, how strong it feels to be with your brothers and do what you want. And a day like today is bigger than you'd ever dreamed of. A day when you can do anything. But it's all fantasy, because that kind of shit never happens until it actually does. Fucking electric guitars buzz around me as I reach up as high as I can and try to grab dry air. How it feels cutting around my palm. I try to burn that shit in my memory, how it turns my hand almost cold. I want to remember it forever. I pull my hand in when we hit gauge, though, and the feeling's fading a little because it's obvious just by looking around that this is some serious Mad Max shit. There's some looting going on, but it's not like on the TV. People running around like crazy, pushing through holes and storefronts like rats. Here, there's no shit that looks like cotton candy in the street. No fires. Smells like smoke, though. Woody. But also that sharp kind of bitter smell when you burn plastic. We roll our four-car caravan by Western Auto just to scope it, but they got motherfuckers on the roof with rifles. So I make a decision then and say, fuck that. Apache snaps the wheel around and we're picking up speed again, turning the street into one of them luge courses you see at the fucking Olympics. Albertaville or whatever the fuck it was last. That's us, except it's four cars together, slipping through traffic saying fuck you to red lights keeping our heads on swivels to see if any other gangs got their necks out, if they're doing what we're doing, too. As we're passing Mel and Bill's market, we see some white dudes we never seen before looting up some cases of canned beer, loading them in a truck. So Apache aims us right at them and comes in all hard, slamming the brakes at the last possible second, laying down a rubber trail on the street as we squeal to a stop just inches away from these guys. Damn, do they ever look shocked as fuck. Not near as shocked as when I pull my gun, though, and Apache backs me. This ain't your neighborhood, 
I smile cold when I say it. You better get the fuck out while you still can. They do what's good and drop the beer, but I tell them to pick it up and help us load it off their truck and put it into the van we got. So they do. Then we're off and away, peeling our eyes for the next target. Five. When we hit a carniceria for the fuck of it, somebody blasts the security door at its hinges with a sawed off, and it creaks as the stucco front wall spits little bits of gravel and pebbles like it's bleeding. People never think of how brittle stucco is when they put security doors in. They don't think that all you have to do is break that and then rip the metal security door off. It's easy. After it's done, we kick the door's glass out and go whooping in like Indians in a war party, like we're all in some western. There's no lights on inside, and the smell of meat that's been sitting a while punches us in our noses because the electricity's been off since maybe last night or early this morning. Bags, I say, as I point at the registers. All them motherfuckers. Little homies grab up plastic bags while me and the older homies jump up behind the counter, throw open the clear plastic cases with a thwack, thwack, thwack. That's how they sound when they smack at the end of their sliders and the sound echoes off glass door coolers on the far wall, comes back to me. For a moment, I think of how weird this all is. Nobody around, nobody to stop us. I try to soak it up, you know? Now, I had a lot of days in my life wondering where my next meal was coming from. So this is Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's and a birthday to me. And I'm not the only one, either. As we're snatching up pounds and pounds of ground beef, homies are yelling and screaming. We rip short ribs off their racks and laugh. We throw lamb shanks over the counter for the little homies to catch. When one gets dropped and the little dude looks like he doesn't want to pick it up, I yell out, that's good food, homes. We'll wash it. Pick that shit up. He does, and it takes five of us just to cram everything and anything into those white plastic bags. Eight whole chickens, sausages still linked together in a line so long you can swing it around your head like a rope, four fat beef tongues, and on and on. We're in and out hauling as much as we can carry, filling the trunk of Apache's cutlass to bursting with meat, chumping on it, mashing it down so it'll fit, you know? Apache fights it at first because he sees bags ripping, he sees blood dripping through, blood dragging red lines through the dirt on his spare tire and disappearing into the dark blue carpet the trunk's lined with. I tell him we can clean it later. We'll make the little homies do it with the hose and some soap and sponges while we barbecue like a motherfucker. And he's not happy, but it shuts him up. I slam the trunk shut, and already I'm thinking of firing a grill up and how good it's going to feel to feed every last homeboy till he can't walk no more. And just thinking that makes me happier than I've been in a long time. Till I look at Payasa anyway. She's got this look on her face I can't place. It's a coked-out glaze for sure, because she's got them PCP glasses on. But there's something else. I don't bring attention to it or anything. But it's tears. Big ones. She's crying, and she must not know why, because she's swiping at her eyes, and then staring at her hands, and then swiping again, like she can't believe it. Unpredictable shit happens when you sherm. It does. You can cry without knowing why. You can scream or go numb for hours. But like any type of drug, it can make what you already got inside you worse. And seeing payasa like this reminds me of what Ernesto's body looked like, all still in that alley. And it reminds me of how she couldn't even look, how she put her hands over her face when we drove by. And I had to lie and tell her they picked him up. That he wasn't there anymore, even though he was. And Clever backed me up, because she must not have believed me, so she asked him too. 
He said not to worry, that they picked him up, and it was all okay now, as okay as it could be. And then nobody says shit back to the house. I don't draw attention to Payasa. Instead, I tell everybody to get back in the cars. And just when we're halfway to the gun store and I'm thinking we're cool, she leans out the window and shoots five holes in the side of a station wagon that looks like it's maybe got some bloods in it. She laughs all hard, too, when the other cars veer to the side of the road, runs up over the curb and makes a break for it through the strip mall parking lot. Mosca would have loved this shit, she says. Where the fuck is he anyways? Getting stirred up in some shit or what? It's that or what that hits me. She doesn't really want for anybody to answer her questions, though. She just says, yeah, like she answered them herself and keeps looking out the window. I look at Clever, and Clever looks at me. He doesn't know about little Mosco, but he knows. He's too smart. He knew when Mosco didn't come back in the morning that that was probably it for him. Nobody says shit till we're parked on the side of a red brick building that says gun store in big blue letters on the front and we're sneaking around the side in a big long line, guns drawn, and I'm praying all quiet to myself that Sonny really is a piece of shit, and he really did leave this door open so we don't have to shoot it off. Thank you for listening to Harper Audio Presents, edited by Sharon Matlin. If you'd like to hear the next excerpt of All Involved, we'll post an excerpt from day three on Tuesday, April 21st. And you can hear my interview with Ryan and the day one excerpt at Harper Audio Presents. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening.